morning. I bet you were expecting me to say, how are you doing? <laughs> a special welcome to you who are visiting today. We're so glad that you've uh, joined us and are worshiping with us. Um, you, I guess you should know, maybe you've picked up on this already, but this is a red letter day for Grace Baptist Church. This is the inauguration of our stair climber. Uh, it doesn't take much to get us excited <laughs> around here. Uh, we are excited about it. Uh, we need to christen the thing. I don't know how Baptists are supposed to christen such a vessel. I don't know if we're supposed to smash a bottle of grape juice across it or whatever. What I do know is that I want to be there when Norma takes the maiden voyage. And we're uh, very grateful for all of you who gave, um, as Don mentioned, to make this project possible. It's going to get a lot of good use. And uh, I guess I, I, I do want to say also for the record, I, I'm not sure what Don was getting at when he mentioned the weight limit and then he mentioned Tracy. Tracy, I, I don't think you're anywhere near 400 pounds. <laughs> Just for the record, I mean, you could probably ride that thing. But you shouldn't ride that thing unless you're old. So yeah, you could probably ride that thing. <laughs> no, I, I should just stop. I, uh, this is going to get lots of good use because our, our church has been blessed with a lot of uh, senior adults. Uh, senior adults, that's maybe the best way to say it. I know I don't have a very good track record. Yeah, thank you. I don't have a very good track record when it comes to knowing the appropriate way to address folks in that particular demographic. You know, for a lot of years, I even thought it was okay to say old fogies. And uh, I realized that I needed to get up to date on these things and to educate myself. So uh, recently I read an article entitled, Who Are You Calling Young Lady? and other ageist language that needs to change now. That's the title of the art article. And have you noticed that, that articles nowadays are very shrill, they're very preachy. You know, like you need to change this now. Uh, you come across these articles that say like 10, 10 things your iPhone can do that you had no idea they could do, you idiot. That type of thing. Though this is the kind of uh, article that we get these days, but uh, so I was uh, happy to read this argue uh, article and be uh, educated. Uh, of course, old fogey was in the not cool category, along with geezer, old coot, and codger. And I was surprised to find that both senior citizen and elderly are no longer acceptable. They're in the not cool column. I was glad that I read this article. I would not have known that. In the cool column, the it's okay to say this, is the term older, older. Not old, you can't say old, but you can say older. Apparently that ER on the end makes all the difference in the world. Uh, but don't go too far. Don't don't add an E-S-T. <laughs> That's not cool. Also acceptable are perennial, seasoned, wise, mature, 
and that the authors even recommend calling someone in this age bracket a sage or a wizard. So there's a new uh, suggestion for that small group that meets up on the hill. The, the Wayland Wizards. Now as we come to uh, Genesis 48, the spotlight shines on, on Jacob, who fits squarely into this category, whatever you want to call it. We hesitate to say that he's old, but he's certainly older. He's older than most. The days of Jacob, the years of his life, are 147, the last 17 of which he has been in Egypt, and he spent those with his son, Joseph. And it's kind of interesting, isn't it, that Joseph spends his first 17 years in the presence of his father in Canaan, and then the last 17 years of his father's life are spent in Egypt in the presence of his son. I don't, I don't know if there's any significance to that at all, but it's kind of cool. And what is significant is that here at the end of his life, Jacob demonstrates what it is to have a mature faith. We can, we can refer to this 147-year-old as seasoned, wise, mature. Not because it would be ageist to not do that, but because this is what God in his kindness and in his grace has formed Jacob to be. As we've seen for much of his life, Jacob has struggled. You know, his, his sanctification has been by fits and starts. But by the grace of God, he, he's able to stand before us today as an example of how to finish well firm in the faith his is a mature faith and what I mean by the word faith I mean something like the evidence of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen faith is that firm belief in and alignment with everything that God has said even though his his word and his promises are not yet present or palpable, still you grip onto their substance in your hands. You, you lean on them the way an old codger leans on a cane. Sorry. The, the way a wizard leans on his scepter. I don't know. You, it's that dependence. It's, it's that conviction of substance to things that you don't yet see. So let's take a closer look at our passage to see what a mature faith looks like. What it says and what it does. And Jacob's faith can be seen in four areas. In four areas. In his arrangements, in his adoption, in his reordering, in his present. Those will be the headings under which we'll deal with this text and how appropriate that our points are brought to you today by the letters A-A-R-P. <laughs> I don't know, it, it just, it's a coincidence. Let's look first at his arrangements. Well, they say that at some point on the backside of the hill, 
it's wise for you to make arrangements for your own funeral. You know, you don't want to burden your kids with having to make all kinds of difficult decisions while they are hopefully grieving. So it makes sense to, to prearrange and to pre-plan and perhaps to prepay for everything uh, pertaining to your death and burial. And this is especially important if you have some really strong and specific wishes. If you've got some, some things that you really want to see happen, then it's very important that you would plan that ahead of time. For example, I heard one gentleman say that when he dies, he'd like the Buffalo Bills to be his pallbearers so that they can, quote, let him down one more time. Seriously, though, if you have particular songs or scripture readings that you'd like in your funeral service, instructions about your burial, something that you'd want on your headstone, that it's, it's imperative, really, that you would make these plans ahead of time. And by chapter 47, verse 29, Jacob has approached the very end of his life. And I find the wording of this verse to be very interesting. It says that the time drew near that Israel must die. And that little word must is really just a stark reminder for us, isn't it, of the inevitability of death, the absolute necessity given the fact that we are sinners. Death is the wage that our sin pays out necessarily. And our time of death is something that is determined by God alone. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 reminds us, It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that to face the judgment. In light of this, it, it seems to me that if you're making prearrangements in view of your future passing, the most important detail that you need to deal with is, are you prepared to stand before God in judgment? You've got, you've got your burial plot, you've got your songs picked out, but where will you spend eternity? Heaven or hell? Those are the only two options. And then how can you be sure that you are destined for eternal glory rather than for eternal wrath? On that great day, how can you stand before the Lord in boldness instead of trembling in fear and uncertainty? And it just so happens that the second verse of our new song of the month that we sang just a few minutes ago gives a really great answer. Let me just read it for you. Now the curse, it has been broken. Jesus paid the price for me. Full the pardon he has offered. Great the welcome that I receive. Boldly I approach my father clothed in Jesus' righteousness. There is no more guilt to carry. It was finished upon that cross. And I'm, I'm here to testify, to boldly proclaim to you with joy that the only way that you can stand before the judge in a bold way rather than a fearful way is if you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. If you have believed by faith in his finished work, on the cross on your behalf have you been united to, to Christ by faith 
well, then you have nothing to fear. You've got nothing to fear. He's, he's fully paid the price for you. you. You've received full forgiveness, full pardon for your sins. There's no more guilt for you to carry. There's no more wrath for you to bear. And as you stand before the Father on that great day, great will be the welcome that you receive. Open arms. And that's the most important funeral arrangement that you could possibly make. And I pray that you'll have that settled today, every one of us. This is a settled issue for Jacob, for Israel. So, so he desires to deal with something else that is incredibly important to him. And this detail is a clear testimony of his mature faith. The detail concerns the location of his final resting place. And Jacob, notice, is adamant that he is not to be buried in Egypt. He's to be buried with his fathers. And I don't, I don't want you to misunderstand what's going on here. The issue for Jacob is not who he's buried with. The issue is, where is he buried? And you can see this especially in verse uh, 30 there in chapter 47, which says, bury me in their burying place. So the issue for Jacob is place. Where is it going to be? Place, I hope you'll remember, has been an issue all throughout the book of Genesis. It's a theme that, that has kept cropping up Time and time again. In Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God made men, man and woman, and he placed them in the midst of a, a beautiful, well-equipped garden. That, that was a, a beautiful place for their abode, for their joy, for their work under the smile of God. But because of their sin and their rebellion, they were banished from that place. There were angels that were set to, to guard um, from, from anyone ever returning to that place. Now you fast forward to Genesis chapter 11, and what, what do we find but God commanding Abram to move away from his place, his home, everything that he knows and loves and holds dear. And he calls Abram to go to a place that God is going to show him. And central to the promises that God makes to Abram, to Isaac, to Jacob, is land. You know, uh, dealing with this place issue. So the Lord is promising to give a, a permanent place for his people as an inheritance. This is what's known as the promised land. And Egypt was not it. Though it might, it might have looked by this time that it was. If you do the math, then you realize that by this point, the famine is now, I don't know, 10 to 15 years in the rearview mirror. Um, Goshen at this point is super green. You know, it's living up to its reputation. Every year it's in the top 10 most desirable zip codes in Egypt. And, and dwelling in that land, Jacob's family and their livestock and their possessions, they are increasing exponentially. It might have, I'm sure you can picture this, it might have seemed to them 
to be the promised land. And if it wasn't, then how could the actual promised land be any better than, than this, than what they're experiencing? You can imagine how tempting it would be for Israel to put down roots in that place and to become very invested in the land of Ramses. I know you can imagine it, because isn't that exactly what we do in the world? This is what I do, especially when things are going really well. We, we forget that this world is not our home. We, for, we, we lose sight of the fact that we're meant to just be passing through as sojourners, as pilgrims. Our treasures are supposed to be stored up, you know, some, somewhere beyond the blue, and so it's not right that we would feel at home in this world, but we do. Let's just face it, we do. Because it's so much easier to walk by sight than it is by faith. It's so much easier to grab a hold of and collect and amass things that you can actually see and hold in your hands. But, but listen to how the book of Hebrews describes faith. And especially the faith of folks exactly like Jacob. This is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 and following. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland, a better country, a heavenly one. They're seeking a more permanent place. And you know, the, the arrangements that people make concerning their passing, they almost always reveal what is most important to them. It's, it's a sort of, it's a tell, if you will. They, they may have been able to fake it, but when they're thinking about the end of their life and they're, trying to set forth some instructions, you, you have a really good insight there as to what this particular person really, really values. For example, the, the country singer, Joe Diffie, has uh, instructed us to fill up his boots with sand, put a stiff drink in his hand, and prop him up beside the jukebox if he dies. That, that's his pre-arrangements for us. And... That, because that's where he wants to be. He, he wants to continue to be the life of the party. He wants to be with his buddies in the bar, having fun. Jacob, on the other hand, wants desperately to be where the Lord's promises are going to be fulfilled. He believes that they will be fulfilled, most certainly. And he, even though he's going to die before he sees God's promises fulfilled, especially the promises about land, he, he wants to repose, he wants to rest and wait in the land that will one day belong to his people in fulfillment of that promise. And friends, that is incredible faith. Do you, do you see how strongly he desires this? He, he makes Joseph promise to transport his body back to the family cave in the land of Canaan. And one kind of guarantee is not enough. Joseph has to 
doubly guarantee that he would carry out his father's wishes. So two double, double whammy here. And the first affirmation is kind of gross. Let's just be honest here. Israel commands Joseph in verse 29 to put his hand under Jacob's thigh and promise him that he will sure to be to carry his body back to Canaan. Joseph's probably saying, Dad, can't we just do like a pinky promise? But no, this is a custom in that time and culture. It's a custom, thankfully, that we didn't carry on, that we don't know a lot about. And it's even grosser if you realize that thigh is probably a, a euphemism. Okay, I won't. You're, you're begging me not to go any further than that, so I won't. Again, we don't know exactly what this custom was all about. Some people postulate that since you're kind of dealing with the reproductive area there, that, that it, was, uh, it was symbolically um, putting yourself in the place of if you fail to carry out what you promise to do, you are basically calling on yourself divine punishment in the form of infertility. Um, that's, that's one of the most popular explanations for, for why they did this sort of thing back then. I don't really know. I have my own theory. My own theory is that it's the, it works on the principle of the greater to the lesser. So if you're willing to do something that nasty, then by comparison, you're, you're happy to to carry out the, the much lesser thing, which is your promise. That would be a much easier and far lesser thing to do. Uh, I'll move on because I can tell you're, you're wanting me to. But even this isn't enough. I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty, pretty strong um, promise there. But, but Jacob wants more. He presses his son to to swear an oath that he will obey these orders. Something that that Joseph, by the way, is more than willing to do. Uh, He swore that he would take his father's body back to the land of promise. I I bring up that double promise just to show you how exercised Jacob is to have this wish fulfilled, that he be buried in the land of promise in anticipation of the fulfillment this shows and here's another thing that shows how serious he is about this when this arrangement is made when it's settled he bowed himself on the head of his bed Um, some versions say on on the head of his staff Uh, Hebrews will mention that too and it can be rendered either way it's basically just depends on what vowels you supply to the Hebrew consonants And either way, commentators believe that this is describing an act of worship on the part of Jacob. This is the posture of worship. At least it's the posture of a a frail old man, older man in in worship. He's he's bending as low as he can. He's not going to be able to fall prostrate on the floor like he would in his younger years. He's bending as low as he can in order to praise the God 
that has been so faithful to him these many years. That's a, that's a beautiful thing. And friends, that is a picture of mature faith. One that right till the end is holding on firmly to the promises of God and is bent over in worship to such a faithful God. Israel's faith is seen secondly in his adoption. This is the focus of the first seven verses of chapter 48. It's Jacob's adoption of his grandsons, Manasseh and Ephraim. They're his grandsons, but he is adopting them as sons. And that was a thing in those days. uh, Someone who um, was dying and about to bless as part of his last will and testament, in order to bestow his his estate or his his blessings on on someone perhaps that wasn't related to him, um, they would formally adopt that person and then bless them. And there was some ritual to this, including the formal declaration that, quote, such and such is mine, to name their name and to declare them as yours. You can see what a big deal this is for for Jacob because he's on death's door. And so Joseph and his sons come to see Jacob, likely for the last time. Um, Some of you have received that kind of word about your parents and it's a terribly sad thing very sobering thing it's a very important moment those last moments that you spend and so Joseph and his two sons come to see Jacob and Jacob is completely bedridden he's too weak to stand but for such an important occasion he summons up the strength to at least sit up in bed And the beginning of this speech is very important preamble. You see this in verse 3 where Jacob recalls the Lord's past dealings with him. He testifies that the Lord God Almighty appeared to him at Luz, that is Bethel, and blessed him and promised to make him fruitful and multiply him and make him a company of people and give him land, not just to him but to his offspring, as an everlasting possession. Everything that Jacob is about to do demonstrates that he's holding on to those promises for dear life. And now, at the end of his life, as he's about to depart, without seeing all of these promises fulfilled, but believing that they will be fulfilled, in his offspring, what he's doing by faith is that he is now organizing the companies of people that are coming from him. He, he's taking on other offspring. And it's hard to miss that his adoption of Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, is a sort of replacement for his oldest two sons, Reuben and Simeon, who by their egregious sin have, have proven themselves to be unworthy for such precious promises. And you can see this certainly at the end of verse 5, but also in verse 6 where Jacob says, they shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. This is the explanation for what we'll see later in the Old Testament. When the land finally comes into their possession and it needs to be allotted to the various tribes, you'll see that Ephraim and Manasseh are allotted territory and they're counted as half-tribes representing Joseph, 
And with Levi receiving no land, because that would be a priestly caste, that makes 12 tribes again in total for the promised land to be divvied up between. And as I said, this adoption process is highly ritualized. And the most important part, for my money, the most beautiful part, happens in verse 5, where Jacob names these two boys as his own. Do you see it there? He says, and now your two boys shall be mine. Ephraim is mine. Manasseh is mine. This is a refrain, friends, that's echoed throughout the, the Old Testament to talk about God's possession of this people. And we have echoes of this in the New Testament, don't we? We who, like Ephraim and Manasseh, have no natural right to be considered the sons of Israel. Think about it. The, these two boys are half Egyptian. Their mother is the daughter of a, an Egyptian priest. What makes them to differ with Jacob's, I don't know, 50 other grandchildren? They have no claim to that inheritance, and yet Israel names them as his own. Does that sound like anyone you know? Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about us who are in Christ in Romans chapter 8, verse 14 and following. He says, for all who are led by the spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him that friends that is your reality today if you're in christ you are an adopted son of god co-heirs with christ well now that their sonship has been established jacob is able to bless ephraim and manasseh and the actual content of the blessing is found in verse 15 and I want to just point it out, out a couple things about it. I want you to notice the power behind it. This isn't Jacob, you know, the wizard with magical words. The power behind the words that he speaks is the God that he worships. And notice how he describes the Lord God. Three ways. He's the God who, before whom his own father and grandfather walked. This is a generational God who's been faithful down through the ages. He's a God who has shepherded him. And Jacob, who himself is a shepherd and is from a family of shepherds, he understands, I would think, the, the implications and all of the beautiful connotations that come with this idea that the Lord is his shepherd. And he describes God also as the angel who has redeemed him time and time again. And if you're kind of confused by that, if you're wondering how Jacob can call God an angel, well, just recall the many times in his life where he has been up against it. He's been in danger. He's been facing a difficult situation. And at just the right time, he was strengthened by an angel of the Lord. 
to speak a word of promise, to show a, 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 a encouraging vision. And that angel of the Lord was none other than the Lord himself. And all of these things are, are fresh in the forefront of Jacob's mind as he speaks forth this blessing. It's this steadfast Lord. It's this loyal Lord, this God who is both shepherd and savior. That's the power behind the, the blessing that Jacob speaks. And the blessings are simply that the promises that had come to him would now be upon this next generation. That the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob would now be the God of Ephraim and Manasseh. And that they would grow to be a multitude of peoples in the midst of the earth. It's a simple, um, it's a simple blessing, isn't it? But it, it, behind it is profound faith in the God who is faithful to keep his promises. And I just want you to notice that this all is spoken from a mature faith. And how do I, you wonder, how do I know that? Well, it's interesting. Out of all of the things that could have been said about Jacob and, you know, his uh, illustrious career, if you're writing about Jacob in the Hall of Faith, for example, in Hebrews chapter 11, out of the, all the things that we've seen Jacob do and be and experience, the thing that stands out for the author to the Hebrews is this, and here's verse 21 of Hebrews chapter 11. He says this, By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. That's, that's the demonstration of his mature faith. And this, friends, is what it looks like to finish well. Blessing God, blessing the next generation, Believing that even though you die, the promises of God will continue to live and flourish. And that you ultimately won't stay in the ground. But the promises of God that are for you that, that say that he will again bring life to your mortal body. That he will, being the resurrection and the life himself, will raise you up into an incorruptible body. You fall asleep on, on that hope as well. Well, I need to hurry on to a third demonstration of Jacob's mature faith. And it's seen in his reordering, his reordering. Now, speaking of these boys, you know that there's a proper way to address boys or, or any children, any siblings for that matter. So when I introduce people to my sons, for example, I say, these are my sons, Job and Jonathan. Job is, um, he's older. And so he goes first. There's, there's an order. There's a natural priority. It would be a slight to Job, my older son, if Jonathan was to get first billing. You know, you don't say, here are my sons, Jonathan and Job. You say Job and Jonathan. And now I'm setting myself up to have this scrutinized every time I... <laughs> This is ideally how I do it, unless I have a, a senior, uh, a, uh, I won't say a senior moment. 
I'll just move on. This is how Joseph introduces his sons in verse 1. He does it properly. Look, he says, Joseph took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. That's what's proper. Okay, Manasseh the older listed first. Not only is that a proper way to address sons, but it's a proper way to bless them as well. And naturally, it's the firstborn who is entitled to the greater blessing, the lion's share of the inheritance. And so we see in verses 10 and following that Joseph, as one commentator has put it, is stage managing this blessing. You know, he's, he's doing his father a favor. His, his dad is weak. His eyesight is, is dimming. And being the helpful son that he is, Joseph puts Manasseh on his left. Okay, Manasseh's on Joseph's left. And he puts Ephraim on his right so that when he pushes them forward, Manasseh, the older, would be on Jacob's right hand. And Ephraim, the younger, would be on, on Jacob's left hand. Do you see? So this is, this is um, very, very helpful of Joseph to do this. But Jacob pulls a fast one. And he crosses his hands, thereby giving the younger the greater blessing, sorry, the younger the greater blessing, and the older the lesser. And Jacob sees this happen, and he has the, the same kind of reaction that I picture our, no offense, but I, I picture our president's communication team has every time he's in front of a microphone. <laughs> You know, just like head in their hands, saying, shaking their, saying, no, 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 sir, what are you doing? He's old, God bless him. But this is a very unfortunate gaffe. Doesn't he know that he might start World War III? I'm talking about Jacob here. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about Jacob and Ephraim and Manasseh. This is, this is not good. You're, Dad, you're getting all of this wrong, and it's not going to play out very well with these kids. So Joseph goes into damage control mode in verse 17. But it's too late because a, a spoken blessing cannot be revoked. And we learn this from the time that Jacob received his blessing from his father. Besides, we discover here as we read on that Jacob is fully aware of what he's doing. His, his eyes might be dim, but he has seen all of this very clearly. And no doubt with divine prompting, he has intentionally put the younger one over the older. And so Jacob says, I know, my son, I know. And those are the comforting words of an, of an older man who himself has been comforted. From the beginning of his life, even in utero, we've seen Jacob grabbing heels and clamoring for the blessing, believing that he has to deceive and manipulate in order to possess what the Lord has already promised to give him. But, but now, at the end of his life, he, he, you sense a real peace, uh, a resignation, a, a real firm understanding that the Lord is going to accomplish 
what he says he will do, and he's going to accomplish it in the way that he wants to do it. He's going to do it in his own way. And what we've seen time and time again in the book of Genesis is that the Lord's ways seem to be a way that bucks convention, that upsets our expectations. Like a guy that comes up here and says, how are you doing, instead of good morning. The, the Lord's always keeping you on your toes. So often we've seen through our study of Genesis, haven't we, how, how the Lord chooses the younger the lesser, instead of the one who naturally ought to be chosen. And consider your own calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise, no offense, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no man might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ, Christ who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's just be honest. We find that, I mean, we're glad for it when it comes to ourselves, but we find this a little bit frustrating when, when God does this. We totally understand Joseph's reaction that's recorded in verse 17, where it says that this really displeased him. And isn't that so often how we feel about the Lord and his ways? When things go contrary to our expectation, contrary to what we would think would be a natural or normal or fair course of action. For example, in our Membership Matters classes, we're, we're looking at the difficult, controversial doctrine of election. And how is it the sovereign right of God to choose some and bypass others, to have mercy on whom he will have mercy and compassion on whom he will have compassion? What, what is our knee-jerk reaction to that? It displeases us greatly. But the, the sign of a mature faith is when, when you're able to get on board with God's program according to God's methodology, as unorthodox as you think it is. A mature faith yields in humble submission to God's ways, to God's wills. It's saying with, jo with Jacob, I know, I know. Well, let's just look just for a second at our final point. I want you to just see in closing that Jacob's mature faith is seen in his present. He gives a present to Jacob here, to Joseph here at the end. And it's fitting, isn't it? Because at the beginning this whole narrative got kicked off with a present, a coat of many colors. And at the end, Jacob's got another present for his son, Joseph. It's, uh, it's a piece of land. And this whole thing is a little bit confusing. Um, commentators are not sure how this fits in to the, the story, this 
point, and we're not even really sure where, where this land comes from. Jacob explains that, that he, can't, he has possession of it because he took it from the Amorites with his sword and with his bow. Um, a translation here says that, um, it says mountain slope in some of our translations, and you might notice a little note here that has an alternate reading of the word Shechem. This might be, you know, Shechem or a portion of Shechem. And the only time we remember a discussion about Shechem is when Joseph's brothers took it in a violent rage, you know, trying to vindicate what had been done to their sister. And you'll recall that Joseph, Jacob had wanted no part of that. So we're not sure if, if he's referring to that incident, how he came to possess this land, or if this is some other uh, thing that we're not told about in Scripture. It's all very, very confusing. But I think the best clue to all of this is at the end of verse 21. Jacob's heart is that his son Joseph would follow in his footsteps. That Joseph would not be seduced by the comforts and pleasures of Egypt. But that Joseph, too, would put his full hope in all of the promises of God. That he would rest in the promises of God. That he would be laid to rest, if you will, in the promises of God. In the place where God's promises would be fulfilled. And to that end, Jacob gives his son land in Canaan land that the Lord had given to him through conquest, which is how the Lord is eventually going to give all of this land to his people. And essentially, this is Jacob saying to Joseph, end up here, okay, land here, land in the very great and precious promises of God. In a mature faith, I hope you realize, is not content to just keep it for oneself, but to give it away, to, to present it as, as something to be possessed by other people, whether that's your children or your neighbors or your coworkers or your grandchildren or people in your, your church, the, the children of your church. A mature faith gives it as a present and imparts it to the next generation. And this is one thing that I am so thankful to the Lord about, that here at Grace Baptist Church, we have a, a whole demographic of seasoned, wise, older people who are handing down to the next generation a legacy of faith. And there's a mature, theirs is a mature faith. They are encouraging the next generation to believe the gospel, to live the gospel, and also to die in the gospel. Amen? Amen. I thank you for your attention to God's word.